Psalm 63, 8, when David was in the wilderness of Judah, he wrote these words. He was in a battle. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And then Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. I don't think we need a definition of the Hebrew or Greek word to understand what cling means. You might be remember, you might remember being a little child and clinging to your parents when you were in some kind of a scary situation. You might have lost a loved one and you cling to the bedside knowing that they were going to depart out of this life soon. Sometimes when we are, um, when I visit my children in Australia and it's time to say goodbye to them, I cling to each one of them, just wanting to soak up as much of them as I can. I cling to them. We understand as women, as humans on this earth, what that word means. The dictionary defines the word cling in this way, way, to stay very close to someone, especially for emotional support. But when we use this word in the sense of clinging to Jesus, it's not so much for emotional support as it is for spiritual sustenance, spiritual support, and spiritual strength. So John chapter 6, we are going to look at a conversation that the Lord had with his disciples. And before we get into this conversation, I want to just give you a little bit of background on the book of John, where we are in John chapter 6. It is still fairly early in the ministry of Jesus. He is still very popular when we go into this chapter. But remember that the book of John is the most evangelistic book in the Bible the most evangelistic book in the Bible. The word believe is used around 100 times in the book of John. It is the theme of the book of John. The book was written so that we might know who Jesus is, that we might believe in him, and knowing and believing we might have the assurance of eternal life. It is a book, an evangelistic book. And there are seven signs in the book of John, miracles that Jesus performed to give his life and his ministry credibility and power. So remember that in John chapter 2, he turned the water into wine. In John chapter 4, he healed the nobleman's son. In John chapter 5, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 6, he fed at least 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread, John chapter six. And then after that happened, he walked on water. So we are going to be in John chapter six shortly after he fed the 5,000 and shortly after he walked on water. So at this point, verse 26, we're gonna pick up. The people are looking for him, they're following him and they find him in the synagogue at Capernaum and they want to listen to what he has to say to them. They're all ears at this point. Verse 26 to verse 29. Do not work for the food which perishes. We'll start at, sorry, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
They said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Let's look at these verses. First of all, we need to understand that the people are there because they want physical deliverance. They are under the strong arm of Rome, and they are hoping that Jesus Christ will deliver them from that and set up his own kingdom. They want a political, social, economic deliverance. They are not thinking so much spiritually. They just feasted on the bread and the fishes, and they're hoping that Jesus will do much more to provide for their physical needs. They want a change in their living conditions. And we are not that much different in America today, are we? If you put a sign out there on the road by this church, if you had on that sign, come in here, there's free food, we'll pay your bills, we'll pay your mortgage, people would be lining up at the door, right? But if you have a sign out there that says, free spiritual health, we will show you the way to eternal life, how many people would come? Not that many. Because we think in such a physical way rather than a spiritual way. The malls and the restaurants are packed, right? And the churches are so often empty. Jesus says, do not seek the food that perishes. His desire is to offer them spiritual life and to offer them something that will never perish. He is trying to change the priorities of these people and get their eyes on the spiritual needs that they have in their soul. He is always striving to get us to that point. Can we see more of the spiritual and less of the physical? So he says, don't work for the food that perishes. And then how do they answer him? Well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? In other words, can you give us a a to-do list? I kind of like to-do lists. Do you like to-do lists? Sometimes on my to-do list, I write things that I've already done just so that I can cross it off. That's how to-do list oriented I am. I seriously do that. It makes me feel like I've accomplished something in the day, right? And so they want a to-do list. They want a religion to follow because sometimes a to-do list is easier than a relationship, isn't it? And Jesus is like, I don't want to give you a to-do list. I'm here to deliver you from the bonds of religion. In Christ, we have freedom. He says, no, I want a relationship with you. That's what he desires from all of us is that more intimate and intimate relationship as we spiritually grow in him. He says, believe in him whom the Father has sent. And David Guzik in his Enduring Word commentary says that believe means to trust and to cling to, to cling to. In verse 30 then, they say, well, can you show us something incredible that we can believe you? Now, wait a minute. We're in John chapter 6. What did I say happened in John chapter 6? Yeah, the feeding of the 5,000. He walked on water. And, and now they're like, well, if, if, you, if you really are sent from the Father, can you show us some kind of a sign? Seriously? But have you ever done that? Like you, you've had a walk with the Lord for years and years and years, and then you maybe feel like you're... you're He's not moving away from you, but maybe you feel like you're moving a little bit away from him. And you're like, Lord, could you just do like answer a prayer in a miraculous way or just somehow show me that you're there? And he's probably like, wait a minute, where's the diary in your heart? Where's the calendar in your soul of the things that he that I've already done for you? We always want him to show us again. 
That's part of our human nature. And one thing we're going to see in this chapter is the, the nature of us as human beings contrasted with the nature of Jesus Christ. So different. So they, they want him to show them something else so that they can believe. We're going to turn over now and pick up in verse 48. I have no idea when I started or when I'm supposed to be done. Verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is the first of eight I am statements in the word of God where Jesus declares who he is. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the nourishment and sustenance of your life. Let's read verse 48 through 52. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. And that phrase, which comes down out of heaven, is used five times in this chapter. Again, he is emphasizing to them, I am someone that you need to listen to. I am someone that you need to believe in. I am someone not of this world, but sent from the Father, come down out of heaven. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. How did they react to this? The Jews there before began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That word argue is quarrel, murmur among them. So you can imagine this. Jesus is declaring to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that if you eat, you will never perish, not like the manna in the wilderness. I am that person. I am that kind of bread. And they begin to murmur. They begin to argue. They begin to quarrel among themselves. What does he mean? How can this be? It's a doubt in their mind. Again, it's hard to believe. But how many times do we sometimes doubt the things that God tells us about himself? So they argued over this beautiful offer. They quarreled over it. Let's go on to verse 53 through 59. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now there's a couple of words that I want to point out to you here in verse 60. The first one, many therefore, well, three of them actually, many therefore of his disciples. Disciple simply means a follower. So at this point, there were many people following Jesus. Some of them had already come to faith in Jesus Christ, and some of them had not. They are all called here disciples in the general term. They were following him to listen to him. And when he speaks that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink, it says, they said to him, this is a difficult statement. That's the Greek word skleros. It means hard, 
harsh, tough, fierce. He is offering them something very precious, something very gracious, something very loving. He is explaining to them that it is the sacrifice of his body, the blood that he shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that is the way to eternal life. And they find it difficult. The picture of it, I'm sure, in their mind was a bit strange. The concept of him giving his life for them was a little bit fierce or hard for them to understand. They call it difficult. And yet, what is he offering to them? Something so gracious, something so precious, and something that no one else on the face of the earth could ever have given. Only the only begotten Son of God is the only one, the only holy God, the only holy person that could sacrifice his life on the cross for us. He is the only way to eternal life. And then the word that I have, listen. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Does someone else have a different translation? Maybe understand? Who can understand it? Barclay says that this is really better translated, who can accept it? They were hard. They were having a difficult time hearing it, and they couldn't accept this offer. And how strange is this? Because he repeatedly offers them the way to eternal life, and they stumble and they grumble over the terminology, over the picture of it. They stumble over the how can this be of it when their ears and their hearts should have been turned to you can have eternal life part of it, right? So Jesus, again, is trying to lift their minds above the physical, above the earthly details of life onto what truly is important. This life fades. This life is only for a moment, only for a breath, but eternity is forever. He's saying, feed on me. Through faith, incorporate me, not into your body, but incorporate me into your soul. As food and drink are incorporated into our body and they give us life and they give us support and they give us strength, they give us energy and power, he's saying, I can do all of those things for you. And they find this difficult. You know, some of the most brilliant moments that I have ever experienced in my Christian life Jean spoke of that moment when we were on the border of Nigeria and Cameroon and the people, that, that breath of the spirit that just went through the people and that's like the lights turned on and they all began to come to Christ. I had had the opportunity to, to share the gospel with my little cards that I carry, you know, pictures for the children. My son, uh, Will, had shared the gospel and then Jean shared the gospel and he answered those questions. And finally, that spirit just moved over those people and they, they, you could see them Physically, you could see them spiritually come to life. So that was like a brilliant moment. I was hungry. I was dirty. We had ran through hours of trails up into this village. I had strange boiled goat guts to eat that night. I was physically, I was a mess. And I've had that that um, experience so many times where physically I'm hungry, tired, thirsty, my hair's frizzy, whatever, no makeup, all of those things. But my soul (laughs) is so satisfied because in my soul, I'm able to share with unbelievers the gospel or I'm able to share with sisters in Christ like you, the wonderful words of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter where my physical body is or what it is experiencing because my soul is so satisfied. And isn't that the best kind of satisfaction? 
And yet I can think of many days in my life where I have a nice home and my bed is comfortable and I've got a hot shower and there's food in my pantry and, you know, the sun is shining and everything's wonderful, but my soul is, is shallow. My soul is not close to the Lord. My, my focus is on physical things. And I'm not happy. I have everything. I'm not lacking anything in this physical world. But because I'm not clinging to the Lord, I don't have that soul satisfaction. Jesus is the only one that can give that to us. And we can only find it when we cling to him. How often we are more concerned with what's in our belly and what's in our bank account than what's in our soul. I want to have a big soul. (laughs) I want to have a wide open soul. I want to have a soul that is filled with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And yet so often I seek things that take me away from that desire. And that should always be our best desire. Our flesh cannot be satisfied. Our old sin nature cannot be satisfied. And this is just a little bit step away, but here's a little nugget for you that are married. Your husband's flesh and your husband's old sin nature cannot be satisfied. So don't beat yourself up over trying to satisfy his old sin nature. It's impossible. My my father-in-law used to say, a beggar and a billionaire both want the same things. A beggar wants another dollar and a billionaire wants another million. Neither one are satisfied, no matter where they are in life. So this reminds us of Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Let's move on to verse 60 through 66. Again, repeating verse 60, many therefore of the disciples, when they heard this, said this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Who can accept it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives light. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. A forethought towards Judas. Verse 65, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and we're not walking with him anymore. So he says again, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. He keeps saying kind of the same thing in a different way, doesn't he? Get your eyes off the physical. Get your eyes on the spiritual. And many of his disciples withdrew. Now this phrase caught my attention because as we travel around the country and even as we travel around the world, we mingle with people, we fellowship with people, we talk with people, like-minded people who have a desire to learn and grow in the word, and we talk with them and we hear of their burdens, we hear of their sorrows, we hear of their griefs, and one of the greatest things we always hear about, as far as great in number and great in grief, is how their adult children have turned away from the Lord. So many people are dealing with that. 
We are dealing with it. With some, we have five children, and some are clinging to the Lord, and some are not. And of course, we pour out our hearts in prayer for those who are not, and I know that you do too. So when we see this phrase that many withdrew from the Lord, I want you to understand that even 2,000 years ago, even in the presence of Jesus Christ himself, even as they were listening not to my words or to my husband's words or to whoever your pastor, whoever you might listen to online, but they were listening to Jesus himself. And yet some of them withdrew. It's going to happen. It's happening. It happened 2,000 years ago. It's happening today because everyone has a choice to make. And we can't make that choice for our daughters or our sons or our granddaughters or our grandsons or our friends or our husbands or anyone else. We can only make the choice for us. And in this passage, we see a process taking place in the hearts of the disciples. As I said, some of them are believers and some of them are not. But either way, there is a process happening here. They doubt, they question, they murmur, they argue, they grumble, they find his words and his principles hard, harsh, and rough. I'm just kind of summarizing the way we've seen these people react to the Lord's words. And what we see is a pattern of negativity that starts with one step and continues down the path until it ends and then withdrawing from the ministry of Jesus Christ, withdrawing from his principles and withdrawing from his words. And here we are 20 centuries later. And as I said, we see so many people that we love withdrawing from the faith, turning back and denying a God that is so real and so good to us. Like sometimes they think, how can they not see? How can they not remember? How can they not look at the world and think, I need a savior, I need a deliverer, I need answers, I need truth. How can they not see? But their hearts are hardened. And when we start down the wrong path, one step, we never know if we're going to turn back. So rather than be judgmental towards these people that we find in John chapter 6, or rather rather than be judgmental to those that we know and love that have withdrawn from the Lord, let's look at our own life. Let's look at our own heart, because we always have to self-examine before we examine someplace else. So how did the withdrawal from Jesus begin? Murmuring, complaining, questioning, doubting, something that doesn't really seem all that bad, does it? I mean, you know, you kind of have to vent sometimes, but be careful where that venting takes you. You kind of have to murmur and say, you know, Lord, this isn't really the lot that I chose in life. This is, I really don't want the big C word or I don't want the big D word or whatever it is you might be dealing with. And that's okay. David poured out his heart to the Lord. It kind of like, yeah, Lord, this is what I feel. I just need to throw up my bad emotions all over you. And the Lord's like, that's fine. Go ahead and throw them up. But just remember to come back. Don't keep going down that path. Because if you do, it ends up with withdrawal, withdrawal from the Lord. Sometimes we do these same things that we find the people in John chapter 6 doing. And then verse 67 through 69, I love this. Jesus therefore said to the twelve, This is after the disciples have withdrawn. And fair enough, the disciples have withdrawn from him and his ministry. And now he's looking at the 12 and he says to them, do you want to go away also? Verse 67, 
It's a fair question, isn't it? If all of them have turned away and gone back, are you guys going to forsake me too? Are you going to turn away too? And I love the way that Peter answers. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Ladies, where else can we go but Jesus? Where else can we go to find peace in the world but in him? Where else can we go for true comfort but to the arms of our Savior? Where else can we go for truth in the world but to the word of God? Because everything out there that is said to us, even in what we consider conservative websites or whatever, you might look at alternative sources of news, you don't know for sure what is true. But you know these words are true. So where else can we go? But so often we go someplace else, don't we? to find all of those things. He has the words of eternal life. The book that you have in front of you is the words of eternal life. It is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces you to the dividing asunder of your soul and your spirit. It critiques your thoughts and intentions so that that's such a good thing, you know? We look in the mirror and we critique our physical appearance. And we try to fix it in any way that we can. Lord, give me something to fix it. <laughs> but we want the, the word of God to critique our inner person and to be the makeup of our soul, the cover-up of our soul. I know. It's a struggle. But remember, we're getting our eyes off the physical and onto the spiritual. We're not going to critique our face in the mirror. We're going to critique the face and love the face of Jesus Christ in the word of God. You know, Psalm 19 speaks about how valuable the word of God is to us. The word of God gives greater wisdom than a PhD, yet few people study it. The word of God offers the greatest joy in life, yet few people experience it. The word of God lights a path for our life, yet few follow it. The word of God has greater value than gold, yet few people seek it. The word of God is sweeter than honey, yet few taste it. The word of God gives needed warning, yet few heed it. And in keeping the word of God, there is great reward, yet few will receive it. So Peter answered that question for the rest of the apostles. And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Later in the book of John, we're going to find uh, John chapter 13. Peter says to the Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And then what happened shortly after that? He denies the Lord three times. He laid down his armor. We've been talking about the Christian warrior. He took off that breastplate of righteousness. He took off the belt of truth, the sandals of peace, the the, uh, helmet of salvation. He laid down his sword. He laid down his spirit. Laid down his shield of faith. (laughs) Sorry. But he picked it back up again, didn't he? He got back in the battle. You can imagine how brokenhearted he was when he realized what he did for the Lord. And he could have very easily just groveled in his sin and groveled in the shame and walked away from the battle. But again, he came to that principle, where else can I go? Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life. He picked his armor back up. He confessed his sin. The Lord sought him out to restore him, and he got back in the battle. We can never fall so far that the Lord can't pick us up as long as we're willing to be picked up. Whatever you have in your past is your past. 
If you have confessed it, if you have forsaken it, you are picking up and moving on, then you are putting that armor back on. And as Jean spoke about earlier, if you do that, the end of your life will not be worse than the beginning. What he said, oh, I won't go there, but I, I know someone personally that fits in that category where the end of their life was worse than the beginning. One of my family members. So this is what Peter says. He was, can you imagine the battle that was raging in Jerusalem from the time that Jesus went into the garden with his disciples? Peter and the others fell asleep. They could not stay awake and pray for him. Remember Jesus stay, said, stay awake, pray, stay alert. And that was one of Peter's first steps down that negative path before he denied the Lord because he didn't stay awake, he didn't stay on alert, he didn't pray, and so he fell. Consider 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That applies to each one of us. Each one of us at any point in time could make that same mistake that Peter made. And we may be confronted with this same question sometime in the future. If persecution upon Christians becomes greater in this country, which I think we all expect that it will, this question could stare us right in the face. Who do you say Jesus is? Are you willing to stand up for him in an evil, um, evil and dark time? So I kind of had an illustration of this clinging principle. Some years ago when we were living in Australia, I was in a post office. And it must have been a, around Christmas time because there was quite a long line. And I was kind of in the end of the line near, near the door. And the door to the post office was a glass door. And it had an electric eye, you know, it would slide open when you came in front of it. So I'm in the post office and there was a young mother standing behind me with a little girl, probably around three years old. And I love watching little children. They're just, you know, they can teach you so much about life and very entertaining, aren't they, little kids? <laughs> so I'm kind of watching this little girl and she's getting a little impatient. She's kind of going over here and going over here. And the mother's trying to keep her in line and kind of trying to reprimand her. Well, the little girl goes outside the door and the door closes. And this little girl that was just having such a fun time kind of playing and moving away from her mother all of a sudden had this horrifying look on her face because the door had shut between her and the mother and she was too short to make the electric eye work. And she was terrified. And I thought right then and there, that's how I should feel every time I take a few steps away from Jesus. We have to cling to him and we have to make a moment by moment a purposeful decision to stay close to him, to cling to him in whatever situation we are in. Well, I don't know if anybody can remember back to the beginning of class, but what did I say the theme was? Cling and bring. Good job. Cling and bring. So we're going to look at a day in the life of Mary Magdalene, but before we do that, I want you to turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We've got the cling part down, and now we're going to look at the bring part. Before we look at what happened with Mary Magdalene, which is a, a wonderful blessing in her life, I just want to share a few verses with you that I consider to be some of my favorite verses in the Bible. John chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a gram of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who takes his life, sorry, he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I want you to see three things in this passage. The first one is found in verse 24. Out of death comes life. When we are willing to surrender our own will to the will of God, death to self means life to Jesus, living to Jesus. The second one is out of fellowship, sorry, out of followership comes fellowship. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. We know that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. And so when we follow in this command to die to self, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, to cling to him in order to serve him and to love him, we have fellowship with him, don't we? Fellowship is joint participation, and we are called into fellowship. The scripture tells us that we are called into fellowship with the Lord, and so we work with him for his goal. What is his goal? To, to reach the nations, to reach the people, to reach individual souls, that the gospel, that the good news of Jesus Christ can spread throughout this world. And as we follow him and we serve him, we are joining him in that goal, joint participants with him. And then I love this one in verse 26. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 20, We're going to see a short snippet in the life of Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, we know, was a woman who was possessed by demons, and Jesus healed her of that demon possession. And out of gratitude to him, along with some other women, she followed the Lord as he ministered around. He and the apostles would be going, they would be teaching, they were ministering to the people, healing the people, doing whatever, three-year ministry. And this little band of women followed with them. They ministered to him. They supported him out of their private means. In other words, they had probably a little money belt or something like that, and they had some kind of uh, economical resources that they shared. Jesus owned the cattle on a thousand hills, right? He had a a heavenly bank account, and yet he lived as a, a pauper, really, on the earth. His clothes got dirty, just like anybody else's clothes, and these women probably washed the clothes mended the sandals, cooked the rice, made the bread, went into town and bought supplies. Why? Well, first of all, because they loved him. And when we love him, we want to serve him. But also because if they did all of those things, if they took care of all of those tasks, then the apostles and Jesus could concentrate on the ministry. They each had a job to do. So these women tended and ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 20, and I love this because next week is not Easter, but Resurrection Sunday, right? So we're leading up to this. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? John, that's right. Said to them, 
They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. John's basically saying, I was faster than Peter. Yeah, I got there first. Came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on the Lord's head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary, and this is the same Mary Magdalene as in verse 1, keep the context, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and she looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white city, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. Now, how could she not know it was Jesus? I think she probably didn't have a full turn and a full look on, but also she thinks Jesus is dead. Yeah, she thinks he's dead. She's lost in her mind. She has lost her Lord. He is gone. Jesus said to her in verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And I think when he called her name, her spirit must have just, like, flown. Like, even just now, like, I'm getting tears, just, or chills, just thinking of Jesus saying, Mary. Or like, what if he said, Nancy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, what? You know what? I'm here. So she turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. Wait a minute. Didn't we just learn that we were supposed to cling to Jesus? Didn't Peter teach us that? That we have no place else to go? And yet Jesus says, stop clinging to me. Now think of this. She is grieving. And I know some of you have been through the grief of, of losing a loved one. Grief is a heavy, heavy thing. So she's been grieving for these three days, and now she's like exhilarated because she, she sees the Lord. And I picture it just like in a big old, you know, bear hug embrace, but I'm not sure in that culture and day and age that that, that probably wouldn't have been proper, even between Mary and the Lord. So I think maybe she's just falling at his feet, just clinging to his feet. And you can imagine the emotions that she's feeling. I want you to understand she is the first person to see the resurrected Christ. Because if you serve Jesus, the Father will honor you. She came from a demon-possessed woman to being the first person to see face-to-face the resurrected Jesus Christ. I call that honor. And if she was given that kind of honor on earth, what will her heavenly reward be? Have you ever felt that Jesus has honored you in some way? Maybe not as in a miraculous way as this, but some way. 
given you some kind of privilege, some kind of opportunity, some kind of blessing that you, you, you just say, that couldn't come from any place else but my Lord. If you have experienced that kind of honor in this life, what is the eternal reward that is waiting for you? If you serve him, he will honor you. And this is what one of the honors that Mary Magdalene had. So he says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, just, just you're going to have to let go, Mary, because I've still got some things I need to get done. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Can you imagine how she... It, it, what, I've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. Yeah, she would have been so excited. And yet Mark tells us that they didn't believe her. But it didn't matter because she had seen the Lord. And she obeyed his command. She went for, from clinging to Jesus to bringing the message of what she had seen of Jesus to the other disciples, to the brethren. And as we cling to him, as we see him working in our life, as we know more about him from the scriptures, we know more about him from relationship, we know more about him from serving, everything that we do where we learn more and more about Jesus, we see him with eyes of faith, we are to tell the brethren. We are to cling to him so that we can bring him to other people because we are living in a lost and dying world and there are so many people out there that need to hear the gospel. Why are we afraid to tell them? I need to look in the mirror. Why am I afraid to tell them? Is it really that embarrassing when we know the ruler of the universe, the creator of the universe, the king of kings and the Lord of lords? What if they grumble? What if they murmur? What if they find our words difficult or harsh or rough or fierce? What if they withdraw from us or turn away? What did Jesus do when the people did it to him? He just showed patience and persistence, and he kept on because he loved them. He loved them enough that he was willing to die for them. Are we willing to surrender our own will, to surrender the embarrassment, the shame, the guilt, or whatever, and speak of him? I saw him. This is what he's done for me. This is what I know about him. This is how I used to live my life. This is how I live it now. This is the prayer that he answered. This is the miracle that he did in my behalf. This is the tough time that he brought me through. Bring Jesus to those people. Bring Jesus to those people. I appreciate you ladies listening. Just remember that cling and brain go together. And this message has spoke to my heart. I was thinking about it earlier and I thought, I just, I think God just gave me this message because I needed to hear it. That and a funky dishwasher. So this is what, this is what happened. I was, I was like debating, because like I said, I usually like to kind of teach in something that's the theme that Jean has. So I was debating between two different classes and I just wasn't sure which class to teach. And then I was sleeping, like around 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm sleeping, and I have this dishwasher who, it's, it's just this random thing, but sometimes when it's done with the cycle, and I usually run it before I go to bed, which is stupid, because this is what happens, but anyway, it starts dinging, ding, ding, ding. And so, in, even in my bedroom, away from the dishwasher, I can hear the dinging. 
I wasn't going to tell you this story. This is embarrassing. I should turn off the recorder. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I wake up and I hear this ding and I start to go, like, get really mad. And then you know how sometimes when you're just waking up, like this thought comes into your mind. So I'm like getting mad at the dishwasher. And then this thought just pops into my mind. It says, don't get mad. Just cling to Jesus. And I, I got up to fix the dishwasher and I thought, that sounds like a theme for a Bible class. <laughs> just cling to Jesus. So, so I was thinking that Peter was the one that was clinging to Jesus, but I remembered the words, where else can I go? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. So I looked up that passage and then it brought me to the passage of Mary Magdalene that actually did cling to Jesus, but she didn't just cling. She also was ready to bring the message to her brothers. So the moral of the story, let's cling to Jesus with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our might, and let's bring his love and his life to a lost and dying world. And my friend Anne is here. She always closes in prayer for me. Father God, we're just so grateful. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the beautiful teaching that man brought to us. And Father, we as ladies here, we just pray that we would uh, take this to heart, that we would cling to you, but more importantly in this day and age, that we would uh, seek to bring others into the fold, that we would let the light of Jesus shine in us and through us. And Father, we just ask that you would give each of us boldness and courage to stand forth for your word, to walk out in faith, to trust in you. Um, this world is so in need of you. And I just pray that you would uh, cause us to move forward, that we would stand our ground and not become a casualty but that we would uh, continue to seek you, cling to you, love you, and we look forward to that day. We just say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.